All right. Welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jeff. I, I kind of feel like an IT director this weekend because uh, I got my car washed yesterday. And as I was vacuuming it, this weird little beeping sound was coming. And I just like, I couldn't figure it out. And so one of the things you, the, the dirty secrets of IT directors is you end up Googling a lot of stuff. So I kept Googling like Honda Odyssey beeping noises and I couldn't find out what this noise was. And I even unplugged the battery and the beep was still going on. And do you know what it was? It wasn't a bomb, thankfully, <laughs> but uh <laughs> It was uh, the the Easy Pass transponder, your favorite Easy Pass, the brand new hot lanes. They've got little batteries in them, and this one beeps and stuff. So, you know, I just I feel like an IT director all, all the time, even if I'm not fixing printers. But one of the other things about IT is you know you got to have security, and we got Zoom bombed last week, and it looks like we got Zoom bombed again. That's right. We have a guest once again. Uh, our guest today is Tyler Sick. Um, I, I found him on Twitter. We just kind of started conversing kind of similar to Scott that we had on last week. Um, Tyler, you want to go ahead and, uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm, I'm currently a, um, a PhD student at the university of Virginia. I'm in my last semester. Um, and starting this summer, I'll be returning to my hometown where I'll be an assistant professor at the university of Pikeville teaching politics and then American studies. That's awesome. And uh, you've done some writing recently? Yeah. So I, I've recent, most recently published in The Lone Conservative, but I've also published uh, in Law Liberty, Providence, The Constitutionalist, which is a newer publication, and um, The Louisville Courier Journal, which is one of the big publications in my home state. That's awesome. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, reading and writing, as most people who follow this podcast uh, know. Uh, it's, you know, a big passion of mine. And I always love to meet people who are like entering the writing realm. You know, I know that as a PhD candidate, I'm sure you've done a lot of reading in your days. Uh, is, is the writing new? Like how, how is that going? Uh, well, writing for a popular audience is new, I guess. As a PhD student, you write a lot for other people who are reading these very detailed books, and this is not. And the things you're writing are not necessarily very readable to most people. Um, they're kind of readable for a, a close knit community of individuals, um, and so it's very different, I think, um, to write for people who maybe haven't um, read all these hundreds of books on the history of conservatism or on the development of the state. But I think it's actually much, in my opinion, it's actually much more important because what is the point of studying politics if it doesn't, if you don't actually engage in the real world and the people who in a democracy shape the future of the country? Yeah. And uh, that's a, a good segue to your piece that, that you wrote for the lone conservative that I want to talk to you about. Um, it's uh uh, excuse me, could you say the title again? <laughs> um, the End of Conservatism. End of they, it originally had a question mark at the end. They, they took the question mark out, which makes it sound a little firmer. Um, <laughs> those, edi those editors. Those it editors. Be, um, I read it to be kind of a question, a live question, um, but um, they, 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 they made it kind of a statement. <laughs> John, you want to go ahead and jump in with the first question for Tyler? Yeah, so as I was reading the piece, um, and this kind of dovetails of what we talked about with uh, previously, and in sort of this book that I read, The Myth of Left and Right, and I, um, one of the things I think you bring up is sort of there's, there seems to be like a factional divide inside of conservatism, an idea that there is a, a I think you write in the piece like there's a true conservatism, um, yeah. and I, I, how would you define that true conservatism? Because I think that's one thing that, that I always, I'm just 
interested in because you know people say oh i'm a conservative or i'm not a, that person's a conservative and you think i maybe maybe not i mean i think if you go back and you read people who sort of there at the beginning of conservatism especially in the anglo-american tradition if you go to europe you become across a whole other thing but people like edmund burke people like john adams what, what you discover is that conservatism is what, what the english political theorist walter Badgett called and i think it's the perfect summary of the animated moderation this is kind of in a moderately moderate view of politics. It doesn't mean that you don't have opinions or any sort of staff, your brain that help you um, shape politics, but it does mean that you adhere to a certain limit and the, uh, the Overton window, I guess you could say. There are limits to what is politically acceptable and you place those limits upon yourself. And in this respect, I've never really thought conservatism is the opposite of liberalism, which is what it usually is seen as. Um, conservatism is the opposite of progressivism, which is this idea that we should sort of charge full throttle ahead. And it's also the opposite of, of reactionaryism, which I think is when you say we should just stop history entirely, go back or, or no longer change at all. And to me, conservatism is that happy meeting ground or medium ground between reactionary and progressive. Kind of like a like a cruise control. And I like that you said that it's not liberalism per se, because that's one of those weird words that seems to have like warped in meaning where there's like the, the classical liberal that someone might say, like, well, I believe in freedom and stuff. And then you've got like liberals nowadays, like, uh, no freedom, no freedom for you, no freedom for me. Um, and it's like there's there is kind of a warping of terms and stuff. So I think maybe that might be the confusion of sort of you go and say, go back to the beginning of what conservatism is versus what someone might say now, where they say, well. Uh, low taxes. I'm not going to, you know, end government spending. That's conservatism. And I think, like, I think, like, that's a policy prescription. But I think that is so divorced from any um, ideological underpinnings, other than like, that's going to get me elected. And <clears throat> would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think. It's, I mean, in general, the, the the point of the piece, I think, what I was hoping to say is that we've, we've come to think of conservatism is a political program there's these mm -hmm. policies and maybe the politics of yeah. taxes maybe they're making universities um, more right-wing but there's these policies and that's what proposes conservatism and i was trying to say that it's not that these things are necessarily irreconcilable with conservatism um, though in some cases they maybe are um, but conservatism is really more of a disposition it's how, it's how you look at the world it's how you understand things and that was what i was trying to say and i think like I said, if you go back to the original conservatism, that's the meaning. And I think we, we've lost that meaning. And I think that's not been very good for our, our politics in general. The, the, the conservatism used to be this thing which, which moderated politics and thus maintained tradition as in a changing world. I don't think it does that as well anymore, now that it's been hitched to this political program. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's that's very apt in terms of there is the, you know, like and people get tagged as like, oh, that's a rhino or something. I think, I don't know that you say it on the Democrats, like you're a dino, but they're like, you know, because you're a rhino, you're not conservative. And I think like that's, again, like there's the policy prescriptions, there's what a coalition brings to perhaps trying to win an election. And then there's sort of broad philosophical underpinnings that you can kind of moderate you as you try to decide like, what's the right direction for people? And where, where do we take this? You know, if I'm a legislative body, do we make this decision? Um, I mean, you, you know, like maybe, for example, like going to war or something like, is that a good example? Is that a, a good um, thing for our country or something to to put us in a in the, secure our future? You know, I think like I, I like that you say like there's the the policy prescription that people talk about now. And then there's the, the real like thought behind it that yeah. seems to be missing. Yeah. And I, I think um, 
something that I think we don't think about enough that really highlights what conservatism used to be and could be. And there's an election in 1952 between Dwight D. Eisenhower and Edward Stevenson, and both of them at various points in the campaign called themselves conservatives. And they mean they're trying to maintain the American tradition. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, they're being moderate and sensible about it and pragmatic. It would be difficult to imagine that either party is fighting over this. I think it's some as both do see themselves as attempting to maintain the American tradition, but they don't see it. They don't do that in a conservative way. They do it in a much more extreme way. There isn't this um, outlook that's uh, moderating their politics in a way that there was in 1952. I mean, it's it, it's one of those elections where I, I think of any reasonable person going, you know, I could vote for either one of those. It'd be nice to have more elections. Mm -hmm like that. And I think it's a conservative disposition, which can exist on the left and the right politically, uh, is a very good thing for a country as elections like that one prove. And we've had plenty um, before in a couple of sense, but it is an increasingly rare thing. So, um, yeah. I, oh, uh, just kind of just like a, um, like the, the progressives and stuff like that's very much like we're trying to rechange society. And I would say like the, the make America great again is sort of we're going to rechange yeah. society in a different vision. And I, I like that's, yes. I think that's the way, um, but. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Today, the, both the left and the right want to remake society to fit their own ideological standards. And that is not conservatism. And it is also incredibly dangerous. If you, mm -hmm. attempts to remake society historically have been disastrous and have really damaged a lot of people. Um, Communism, fascism, I mean, these are extreme examples, but both of these were attempts to remake society. Early American progressivism, uh, also so fairly disastrous on the social level, did horrible things to black people, eugenics. I mean, these, these attempts, when you're trying to remake a culture from the top down, are never, I think, very successful. They're doomed to failure, and they're also doomed to cause all these problems along the way. So... Uh... I agree with that. Top-down structures typically don't yield positive results for citizens, right? I mean, that's what John and I are working on with our Madisonian group. Um, it's it's the, the the idea is a bottom-up power structure, yeah. um, which is kind of what what we are essentially. And that and that brings me to you know tying what you're talking about with the 1950s election of Eisenhower um, and conservatism to like our founding and Republican virtue. Mm -hmm. Right, because like conservatism and public, uh, Republican virtue are, are both kind of these ideas of like this moral guardrails, you know, of electing people to do the right thing and whatnot. Um, how do you like? Do you do you see like a, a correlation between them? Because if when you read like the early standard, uh, you know, all the way up till about the 1900s, you any you know history that you read, you're gonna come across Republican virtue. You'll even come across it in Henry Ford's biography. Right. Like that's how or intertwined it was to American culture. And now it's lost. Like nobody talks about Republican virtue. No. Um, we all talk about the party as opposed to like the structure and the moral you know, ramifications of it. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that that's true. I think in general, um, it's a different. I, we, we still, I think, talk about virtue. We don't we don't call it that. Mm -hmm. um, but we, it's not the same thing as Republican virtue to be virtuous. Um, nowadays, if you're a Republican, is to adhere to these certain moral standards. And it's the same thing for a Democrat. The moral standards are a little different, but if you don't adhere to them, then it's done. You're not virtuous, and they have really no business with you. Republican virtue is a little different than that. It's more about your attitude towards the world, your attitude towards government. 
gratitude towards other people. And that has certainly been lost. As you say, though, it's something that existed in American politics for, for most of our history. I mean, from the American founding up until well into the Cold War, I would say. And I really think we begin to lose it um, in the 60s, at the beginning of what we now call the culture wars, when you have people like Phyllis Schlafly and Gloria Steinem on opposite ends, but sort of pushing a different vision that they think people have to live by. And they see it as the job of government to help make it happen. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, Republican virtue hangs in there for a while, and it still hangs in there. Um, but it isn't a major, it's not a part of our major politi national politics, certainly. And to the extent that those hang in there, it's just because people, many people are fundamentally decent people who happen to be Republican, adhere to Republican virtue, rather than any sort of attempt to promote Republican virtue on the part of government or prominent leaders in the community. Yeah. Um, so I want to pivot back to the piece you made. A, uh, you wrote, um, you kind of make the argument that the the radical right is, poses more of a threat than the radical left. Is that an accurate statement? For I, I think it's a, I think they pose a more radical, a more deep. Are immediate. Im immediate. Yeah, I, I think, I think they do pose a more immediate threat because the threat of, of the right is a political threat. The, the threat of the left, the radical left, is the cultural threat. And cultures take a long time to change. Um, so, but politics can go south like that. I mean, it, it, it does not take long at all for an institution to be destroyed. Um, so I guess you kind of just explained it, but you, that's why you believe the, the right. I mean, I would, I would disagree a little bit. I would say I understand where you're coming from with the social, but I think the, the politics has been tied in with the left as well. I just like the way that I try to describe it to people, or at least the way I see it's going down is like the right, the radical right is like 1984 and the radical left is like a brave new world. Right. And, and no, even no. though, um, you know, you know, the right's going to use the political tools for control and the left is kind of using like corporate tools for control yeah. and like yeah. social and social order. And they're using, and they're, they're actually tying it in through political tools because they're giving corporations yeah. more rights, more control over the system. So like, I think they're both immediate threats realistically. I don't think one is superior to the other. It's just, it, yeah. it's like John and I talked at our last uh, meeting, you know, you've got two power structures fighting for control and they're just yeah. building a bigger and bigger structure. And eventually they're going to clash and create a bang. And like you mentioned already, revolutions, radical change in society doesn't end well for regular people. Right. And I kind of think that's kind of where we're going. What would you say about that? Yeah. So I actually, I think your assessment of the parties is absolutely right about them sort of growing bigger and bigger and dividing the country more and more. I think with the left, the thing is, all, all these things the left does to companies, it seems accidental to me. <laughs> I mean, not, not totally accident, but I don't actually think they're as organized as they seem. I think they, they it's by happens chance that a certain a number of sort of far left people have ended up in a position where they can make companies behave in a certain way and companies can make us behave in a certain way. But I actually think the tide is turning on that. Thing, I don't know if you've been following what was happened at Stanford Law School, where the school originally sort of siding with these these left-wing people who wanted to cancel a judge for being conservative are now uh, siding with the judge, the Stanford Law School, because of pressure from the outside. So I, I think in some ways the tide is turning 
against the radical left in a way. I'm not, I'm not sure it is the radical right. Well, I think it goes back to what you said with the culture. Like the culture is so powerful. And if it, if it, as it shifts gradually, like it's going to exert its control. And that's where someone yeah. can be at the top of a corporation and finally feel like, oh, I kind of, I feel like this pressure that I should kind of go along with this because it's good, you know, it makes me look good for stock, for the stockholders. Uh, it makes me get in, invited to the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I always want to go to Switzerland. Like there's that cultural um, aspect that's that's kind of pushing you there. But, uh, and I think like that's with the law school, like there's the culture of law is one of, it's, if you would say it's a very conservative culture where there's prestige and there's yeah. reputation. And if the reputation of Stanford Law is that, you can't trust these students at all. Like all the professors at Stanford Law, what's the point of them charging forty thousand dollars a year for tuition? You know that would that in itself would destroy Stanford Law. So the the culture of law is going to push them to um, make amends with which Judge Duncan make amends with with the law uh, society as a whole and say like oh, no no that was just a one off. Don't worry, we'll fix our students by the time they're ready to to enter as as um, junior associates. <clears throat> right, but. I I don't think it's just the law thing. I think what the, I think the liberal elites, I hate using the term elite necessarily, but you know, <laughs> no, liberal, sure, that's just law. Is li just liberal the intellectuals yeah. and liberals in places of power, people who call themselves liberals in these positions, um, are much further to the left, I think, than the average person who calls themselves a liberal. The mm -hmm. average Democratic voter is probably much further to the middle than a lot of these people. And I think what they've discovered is that they are leading an army and this particular cause and they, they've turned around and there's not that many people behind them anymore. And I think this is a common theme right now on the left. Whereas on the right, I think the political elites, the intellectuals and the, the businessmen and so, tend to be a lot more moderate than the base. And this is another reason I, I see the problem on the right is, is more immediately pressing. Because I, I think the elites are, are more in agreement with, with my definition of conservatism with this sort of moderate view, but there's a lot of people and who the voters and stuff who don't who don't see this. And I think that they 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 don't agree with that version of conservatism and the right for, for, for very good reasons. I don't I don't think these people are silly or foolish. I think they've been led to a particular place and that's perfectly valid. But um I mean I do think they're wrong their opinion is ultimately wrong and I do think it makes the the, the new right as they call themselves particularly dangerous. Because they are an army. I mean, they're, they're generals with an army behind them. So who would you like, you, we, we've mentioned the new right a few times. Like, who are some people that you would you would qualify as like the leaders of this movement or the faces? No. You know, I mean, we've got, I assume Trump is Trump. Trump's part of that, right? Yeah, Trump Trump is part of that. Though Trump is an odd case because he's, a, he's, 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 he's own, also he's the head of a cult structure. of personality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's the head of his own power Oh, but, but I think DeSantis, I mean, there was a time when it, was, it wasn't entirely clear, I think, where DeSantis stood in these debates, but, but increasingly, he, he seems to be siding with, with the new right. Um, people like Yoram Hazoni, um, who, who wrote a very interesting and, and very bad book about conservatism um, recently, is another big leader in the new right. The Claremont Institute, the whole think tank, founded by Harry Jaffa, who... Um, Apparently, the libertarian who wrote Barry Goldwater's acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention. Now, though, pretty much in the new right. Um, and, I, and I think it, was, it seems to me this is where a lot of the exciting intellectual activities going on. Now, exciting isn't necessarily good, um, but, but these people are the people who are enthusing uh, various young conservatives and conservative voters 
for better and for worse. So would, you, for worse. would you qualify the new right as, I mean, cause you kind of mentioned it in your, in your article, like a pot, they're populist. Yeah, they, they generally are populist. And there's nothing wrong with appealing to voters. We live in a democracy. You have to appeal to voters. But there's the, populism, at least now the modern definition, I think, usually means demagoguery, appealing to the worst sentiments of voters, their anger, their fears, their resentments. And that's the new right specialty. Some of the policies, for instance, Ron DeSantis advocates, seem, seem fine, uncontroversial. But it's the way he gets them. That is a significant problem, I think. He gets them by appealing to people's anger, people's resentment, people's fear about a changing world. And that's dangerous. Yeah. You appeal to the worst side of people. You unleash forces which you cannot control as a politician. No, I, I agree with that. I um, I actually compare – I'll compare Trump and Bernie Sanders together. I mean they're both populist, and they both drive on – the disappointment or disenfranchise of a lot of Americans, right? And then I think the yeah. thing they both have in common is they either don't care about solving the problem or they're not capable of solving the problem, but they're certainly capable of fundraising to make themselves profitable. <laughs> I, I can't I can't believe I take up for Bernie Sanders a little bit. I think I think he is incapable of solving the problem. I don't think he realizes this. Um, I think he thinks he can solve these problems for these I, people. I mean, I think, I think he's a little more noble. Trump is just doing what it takes to get ahead. I think Bernie's a true believer. Now that can be scarier. I, well, I mean, I, I just should emphasize that true yeah. believers can be more dangerous. But, but true believers with bad ideas, and I think that's yes, true believers with bad ideas. Yeah, and I think that's where Bernie Sanders is. You know, like yeah. I, I do, I do agree with you. I do think he thinks he's right and he's noble and he's going to make the world better. But I believe he's so isolated in this little bubble. And he's kind of like he's disconnected from society. He doesn't really know how to fix these problems. He just has yeah. this idea that he won't let go of. Right. I think in some ways this is the tragic. I think there's something kind of tragic about Bernie Sanders is he's almost closer to something than a lot of people in his party, which is I think he cares a lot more about economic issues than social issues. And I think that's always been the Democrats' forte. Um, they're good at helping the working people. And when they when they pitch the party that way, they do quite well. When they pitch the party as we're the party of social progress, it's not that people are anti-social progress necessarily, but it's not what most people are worried about, unless you happen to be an oppressed minority. And it's not you shouldn't help oppressed minorities, but there is a pragmatic sense of this politics. I think Bernie Sanders gets this a little bit. I don't think he does a whole, um, I think he, he, he sort of badly executes it and tends to be far, far too on the left to actually execute it well anyways. But I, I think in some ways his sentiment is a little light. Um, something that the Democrats can learn from. I think Biden learns from this a bit, but Biden is old and confused. Yeah, I mean, my opinions on Biden now are, I just, I don't think it's fair to judge him. I don't personally think he's mentally all there. I mean, like, you look at look at his career and look at where his positions are and look at where he is now. I mean, so far different. And you can say, okay, well, it's a different world. He's got to fit into this social culture and all these different types of things. But I listen to him talk, and I'm sorry. I just, I'm not buying that. I mean, I've read Woodrow Wilson's biography. I know what happened to him. You know, like, I know these things happen in real life. Um, yeah. I don't think it's inconceivable that he's, you know, not. Yeah, and it's not possible. I, I hate to <laughs> speculate. He's never been the brains of the Democratic Party. No. Um, and I think it's very possible that he's kind of 
his staffers are managing him, and it's not necessarily because he's old, it's perhaps just because he's not a particularly strong figure in general. Um, and I actually think Biden's in a difficult place. Trump continues to dominate American politics out of office. This is usually the president gets to dominate the political agenda. Trump and DeSantis, who's not even been president, dominate the, the, the political agenda of America. And Biden is left to kind of react, which is a bad position to be in anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, the Democrats don't have a populist candidate, and we're in a populist movement. So, like, they're they're in big trouble, realistically. Yeah, I, I think I think so, and that's another reason I, I say that the, the new right is perhaps a greater threat. I don't think the Democrats um, have particularly strong challengers to them politically. Um. So, speaking of DeSantis, we've talked about him a little bit. Um, there's, I don't know if it's official or there was just talk. I saw it on Twitter. You and Scott were talking about it. Um, mm. It seems that DeSantis has hired Nate uh, Hockman. Is that, am I pronouncing his last name right? I, I, I'm I, don't think I apologize, I Nate. I, I've you know. read his stuff, but you know, you yeah. read somebody's stuff, you don't know their name. I know. How it's said anyway. Um, <laughs> but they hired him as a speechwriter, uh, yeah. it looks like. Um, what do you think about the hire? I mean, I think I think it is a it is a sign that DeSantis is, is allying himself with the the, the the more national conservative, the new right elements of the Republican Party. Nate Hochman um, has been one of the, the leading young intellectuals in that movement, pushing for more aggressive regulation of social affairs and a more left wing economics of the Republican Party. Um, he's said things like. Um, we worry a lot about our foreign enemies, but we should worry a lot more about our domestic ones. Um, and things like this. I mean, so he, he, he very much, I think, fits into that reactionary vein I described in my article. Um, he, he, may, he seems like a perfectly nice guy, but I think his politics um, do show um, who, who, where DeSantis' priorities are. There's no obligation that you go hire some young 20-year-old National Review um, staffer to be your speechwriter, unless you want something particularly from them. And what DeSantis clearly wants from this guy, I would say, is his access to the young and very enthused new right. What do you think, John? So um, it's quite possible. One thing I've been thinking about is you talk about the, the new right being very dangerous politically. And I, I look at it and sort of there's a lot of, I mean, both, I think both sides have this sort of ends justify the means uh, idea yep. in terms of governance. Like they say, well, we want to get, we want to accomplish X, so we're going to do Y and we're going to do whatever it takes in order to do. Um, but do you get the sense that there's the, the reason you would say the new right is more dangerous is because in the grand scheme of things, if, if you, if you've got this idea that culture kind of drives politics mm -hmm. and the, the, the left is kind of in charge of culture for, for better, for worse, yeah. The right sees that the left then, whenever they're in power, they do things that kind of fit this culture that they may then not agree with. And so they yeah. they see them using politics to further that culture, when in reality, it's the culture that's kind of driving that. And so yeah. the danger comes from the fact that they think, well, we're not, we're just going to short circuit this, forget about culture, we're just going to grab power. And we're going to think that that's going to drive the car when really that's like the luggage car at the end of the train. And you've got a, a train that that needs a conductor. Would you say like that's how you would, you might frame it? Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it, actually. And I haven't thought about this specifically. I, I think you're right. I think 
for better or for worse, the progress America has a fairly progressive cult, an increasingly progressive culture, but that culture mm -hmm. for the most part has grown up on its own. Um, I mean, right. in, in, in the process of becoming that culture, they overthrew huge factions of the democratic establishment. Um, people who were very powerful in the party and who were basically cast out. Um, this is not something the Democratic Party decided they were going to just make happen through social policy in the 60s and the 70s. Some of it, you know, we legalized abortion and we had gay marriage. And they, we've allowed people to do more things, but we, those things were popular before we allowed people to do them. Um, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not quite the same thing. And, but I think you're right. I think the new right sort of misunderstands this. They think that they can use the government to put a stop to all this, and they think that the government's the one who's done it in the first place. And I think they've, they, they've, mis, uh, they, they've misunderstood. If they really are this concerned about American culture, they should start trying to change the culture from within the right. culture, right. not for the, the levers of government, which is, as I said earlier, in the second, it's always unsuccessful and quite often tyrannical. Well, and that's the, the problem with changing the culture. Like that's a long, slow process. And yeah. if you feel like you've got, you know, every, every election's a flight 9-11 election or uh, flight 93 election, like you gotta, you gotta, again, ends justify the means we gotta do whatever it takes to win this election. Yeah. And that causes problems. And in fact, that alienates the people that you actually have to convince in order to change. Like, you know, going back to like the culture is sort of this, it, it is the masses is what people tend to think. And if you have to convince people to change their mind, or to, to steer them in a different direction. Like you're going to alienate those same people that you need to, to change. And I think that's kind of, that's the self um, perpetuating uh, negativity, I guess, negativity about that. But like, you know, you take Donald Trump, he comes in here, he make he does a lot of things that I think some people would agree with. Um, some things I would agree with in terms of, you know, like getting some of the great Supreme Court justices, but um, perhaps the way it gets done, like that alienates people. And then they say, well, yeah. well when someone comes along and says, oh, you're just, you're a fascist because you're short-circuiting this. Like that kind of, that idea sticks in someone's brain that you're trying to convince. And I think like, um, you know, that that hurts your ability to get things to actually like to change the culture and affect it. Yeah, I mean, so European conservatives are often maligned um, in America, especially by the new right, that they're pretty weak and just kind of liberals who slowed things down a bit. Um, but in truth, actually, that they've done things that the American right has not been able. Religious schools are not controversial in most of Europe, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that could that could go on and on with these issues. That they have done things that our American right has been unable to do because the way in which they try to do them unleashes such incredible pushback from the left. Right. Well, when you think that universities are too left wing. If you declare open warfare, well, you suddenly you're going to have an enemy. This isn't. A, this should not be a surprise. You're going to have incredible pushbacks. It's not actually a very good strategy, and it's not, I think, a very conservative strategy at the end of the day. It's, yeah. it's a reactionary strategy. Well, I mean, so that kind of like governing tactic, it it blossomed its head in American history in the antebellum period with John yeah. C. Calhoun, right? And he basically, he oh, he declared war on ending slavery. Like he was like, look, they're going to try to end slavery at some point in time. And so we have to be proactive in expanding um, or protecting slavery in America. That was like yeah. his motto. And he had this, you know, I, I've talked about a few times, power meets power, 
right? And it was yeah. it was always like, you just have to destroy the other guy. It's that zero sum game where you have to win at all cost. Yeah. And it got, you know, it led us to the Civil War. And then like after the Civil War, we never really like repackaged ourselves. There was like yeah. glimmers yeah. of true conservatism and Republican virtue and a few leaders. But for the most part, I mean, yeah. it's just been factionalized ever since. Um, and this idea of like Madison, where it's like ambition, you know, counteract ambition, building coalitions, uh, persuading people. It's we don't have that. It's vote for me or the other guy's going to destroy America. Right. And I think both parties do this. The progressive left or the radical left and the radical right. That's their power structure. That's how they try to get things done. And when you do it that way, like you said, you're just going to create a a bigger, you know, anti-force you know that's going to fight against you and, and it's just this constant power battle i think it goes back earlier than calhounism i think it goes back to andrew jackson the war on the bank the bank wars yeah um, i mean this and it's the beginning of, of jackson this is the essence of jacksonian democracy i mean jackson wins office by saying he he's got all these dirty elites in Washington and in New York, and they run these banks and they, they regulate the economy and they're putting down the settlers and the little man, and he's going to take the country back. Um, and it begins with Jackson. It's not necessarily, in fact, it's okay, it's just that Jackson was wrong here, I, I think. Um, the, the, the country was too elitist, probably. Um, but the, the way in which he did it mattered, and it, it unleashed a particularly we're not as bad as the French, at least yet, but we do have a, a slightly revolutionary strain in us. Perhaps we are doomed always to have a good begin with a revolution. Yeah. Um, a better revolution than the French Revolution, but a revolution is nonetheless a revolution. Mm -hmm. right. um, I do think that this is perhaps a controversial view that probably the most conservative period in our politics, or certainly one of the most, is, is the post-war era between um, 1945 and until around the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The parties are not that far apart. They argue a lot and they say horrible, nasty things about one another, but they're not actually that far apart. Um, there's some real consensus about American politics. Some have got to take a moderate economic line. Now, what counted as moderate then is different than now, but we're also going to take a moderate line on social and cultural issues. Um, and both parties, this, this just kind of consensus. I mean, if you look at the differences between Kennedy and Eisenhower, they're not tremendous um, on most policy areas. Um, but we, we lost that rather quickly. There, there's an argument to be made for the founding period also being very conservative. The difference between Jefferson and Adams was once again, perhaps a little overstated on policy. At least. Mm -hmm. On philosophy, there's a pretty big goal. But... Yeah. I mean, so I agree with you. Jackson was definitely like the first one that came in with that idea. I, the reason I credit Calhoun with it is because he wrote it down. He made it a plan. He built coalitions to to accomplish his goal. Like he did it through the Senate and the House, where Jackson did it from the executive, which I think is just different. Like Jackson ignored the rules to a large degree and forced his will. But when Calhoun taught the rest of the country how to manipulate the system, then yeah. I think you you have this potential. I mean, I would I would argue now, like the House of Representatives, like Nancy Pelosi, uh, Mitch McConnell has equal to close to equal power as the president. Um, mm. And I think that's a lot has a lot to do with Calhoun and the way that he, um, you know, manipulated the system or at least wrote about it. Um, I'm, I'm working through right. his, uh, 
his dissertation or um, not dissertation, but um, I don't know, his his two two books on government um, right. treaties of, of government and whatnot right now. And I just find it interesting. Um, like he was no. a very smart man, you know, and, and having very smart men lay out plans for other men yeah. to follow, you know, that's that's how you make long lasting. Yeah. change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're right. To, to I think Calhoun is the beginning of an ideology that is, is not very helpful. Uh, but I do think Jackson gives us the party system. Yes. A real party system. What we a had different... with Jefferson and Adams was not a permanent, was never intended to be a permanent party system. It didn't work like a regular party system. Yeah. With Jackson, you get a real party system. And the party system, it has some real merits, especially then. It connects the voter with the national government in a way that's just truly impossible back then. And that's not necessarily the worst thing, but it is also the beginning of these other things, the problem of centralization, perhaps, in American politics, which just as time went on, the government has become more central. Oh, yeah. Um, very few periods where we centralize and then become less centralized, only yeah. perhaps after the Civil War. And um, there, it, it was probably shouldn't have become less centralized. <laughs> the, one time, the one time we've done it was in defense of slavery. Or uh, not slavery, but, but racism. Jim Crow. Um, so, um, it's been a sad story, but I think it begins a little bit with the party system. It begins with Calhoun, it begins with Jackson, it begins with the early Democrats, who are not evil. They do some very good things in America, but who have this very big problem. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I think you, you kind of tie it together there. Jackson built the party system. Calhoun made it last, right? Like, because yeah. Jackson, you know, he, it was his power that Calhoun took over because Jackson yeah. was the populist demagogue, realistically, that could reach the yeah. people. Calhoun was the brainy intellectual to a large degree who was out of touch. He was yeah. isolated. Um, and so, but he could work from behind the scenes in, in darkness where Jackson could reach the people and tying those two things together is what made that power structure so yeah. powerful over time. You know, he was able right. to co-op that power, make it his own and move it forward. Yeah. And Calhoun spoke for, for a, a huge, I mean, when we talk about American culture and America has a culture, but America is also 50 states. And especially back then, they were pretty different culturally sometimes. Oh, yeah. And Calhoun spoke for, and I think really helped to define in a not great way. But, and I'm from the South and I love the South, but it has its problems. Um, um, political culture in the American South. Um, and of course, the, this is the beginning of the lead up to the Civil War. And it was, it was already there, but Calhoun gives it an ideology. It, he takes a tradition that already exists and he gives it an ideology. Um, which is, he's not the first to do this in history, and sometimes I think it's a good thing, but it's, it's and in general, actually, to go back to my article, this is, they cut this, but I had this long history of American conservatism of this, and I see why they cut it, it was a little academic, but I, I said that, you know, we were a disposition, conservatism was a disposition for a very long time in the United States, but then you had these people who decided it needed to be attached to a program, it needed to be attached to an ideology in, in post-war America, and that was the beginning of the end of the, of the disposition of the conservative tradition suddenly became the conservative ideology. And the, the, what we see when you look around and watch the news today, this is the end result of ideology. Yeah. So let's tie uh, Nate going to DeSantis back to the Calhoun and um, uh, Jackson thing. So, no. 
Look, we, we're looking at Trump, who's this populist. I compare Trump to Jackson a lot, right? Because no. he, he's he's not an intellectual. He Even though he's very wealthy, he's blue-collar-esque by the way he communicates. Um, and he has a very, like, blue-collar following. You know, like, no. blue-collar Democrats, you know, moved and became Trump supporters. And, you know, no. the blue-collar class of the Republican Party has really followed Trump. Um, DeSantis is... He's an intellectual. He went to Harvard and Yale, right. and he's he's been an effective leader in Florida. We talked about that with Scott last last week. He lives in Florida. He understands how um, you know how good he is as an actual governor yeah. um, to do his job. But he is he's playing in. He's got to play the political game, right? And he's got to yeah. find a way to dovetail onto that populist wing, that new right, and build coalitions so he can win. And I no. think you know he's doing it in a he's he's following he's grabbing onto the wrong things in my opinion. Yeah. And I think overall, I mean, he hired another intellectual to be a speechwriter, and I don't know how that really grabs on to the Trump base. Like, how are you going to pick off Trump supporters with yeah. you know an intellectual writing for an intellectual? When are you going to connect with the the blue collar class of the Republican Party? That let's face it. Like if you go to the Republican parties, like local things, even the people running for delegates, like they are, they're, they're not very blue collar. They don't really represent regular people. I mean, we talk yeah. about it a lot on the show. There's a, there's a race going on in our delegate race. Like you have to have a lot of money to run for office. And these people yeah. are out of touch with like regular people like us. And so I don't know. I don't think he understands maybe, or maybe, you know, mm. I don't know, Nate, I haven't, I've read a little bit of what he uh, has written. I find it very intellectual. He's a very smart guy, very thoughtful, but I just don't know how, I don't know how he's going to get my dad to read him. You know, like if you can't get my dad, if you can't get me from two years ago, if you can't get my brother, you can't get our family to, to read into what you're doing. Then I don't know what's, what's your objective. I agree. I think I agree. It, it seems an odd political strategy to me. I, I think DeSantis, it, it, I mean, it seems that what Nate can really do for DeSantis is bring the conservative intellectual world solidly behind DeSantis. That's maybe not nothing, but it's not actually very helpful to get the Republican nomination. We're talking about one tenth of the Republican Party, maybe. I mean, it's a very influential one tenth. They write the policy, but they're not the part that you need to win a nomination. Um, this is, I think, Trump did not have these people in 2016. He didn't need these people in 2016. And when he got the nomination, the ones who were amenable to him got in line, and the ones who weren't still are not. Um, and some of them even go up, leave the Republican Party entirely. I, so I, I think it is an odd game DeSantis is playing here. Now, I think Nate, um, he comes from the Pacific Northwest. I think he comes from, a, I could be wrong about this. I think he comes from a smaller town. Um, so even though the things he writes are maybe very intellectual, maybe he does have some understanding of voters that, that, that perhaps DeSantis lacks. And he's young enough that he hasn't lived in D.C. so long to have been sort of um, carefully cocooned in the, in the Beltway um, mindset. So so maybe that maybe there's some logic here. Um, but I agree, it's kind of an odd. It does seem to me an odd move on DeSantis's part because it doesn't seem to get him anybody he doesn't already have. Right. The swamp can wash off him, is what you're saying. <laughs> Sorry, what? The swamp can wash off him, is what you're saying. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean that. 
No, but I think to be fair that some of DeSantis's appeal is that he is the sensible, smart version of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, he can get, and uh, I mean, it's a lot of Trump's people who like Donald Trump say, you know, I like him. He couldn't get anything done. And they think, well, you know, DeSantis, he isn't one of us. He's a little too smart. He's a little too put together. But maybe that means something. Maybe that can get, mean he can do things for us that Trump cannot do. And I think voters can be a little strategic in that way sometimes. Um, I think they were kind of strategic in that way with Trump. The religious evangelicals in the South, Trump is not one of them. And polls show they don't like him very much, but they think he's in their corner and they're willing to vote for him for that reason. Yeah. He outperformed George W. Bush, who is one of them among evangelical voters. So I, I, voters are maybe capable of that calculation. And maybe that's what DeSantis is betting. Um, and it's maybe not a bad bet. I mean, so I think, I mean, I think regular blue collar Americans are, as leads from the political structure, both Trump, the uh, progressives and DeSantis, they kind of, they leave them behind. They don't give them enough credit. Um, it's like, we've got to do it this way, as opposed to like listening to them and seeing like what would actually like help their lives. It's like, yeah. it's, again, it's that top down power structure. It's like, I yeah. know best for you. And I think, you know, what I'd love to see is a leader who's actually going to like be a true like man of the people, if you will, not yeah. just pretending to be, because I think both DeSantis and Trump, what they're trying to do is pretend to yeah. be a man of the people as opposed to be one, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt, right? Like he came from wealth. But he walked the streets of his of uh, New York when he was uh, police commissioner, so he could understand the like bottom level problems that they were having, so he could better serve and do his job effectively. And I think overall, we're just missing that on the Republican side. Um, it'd be nice. I think we're if- missing that in, in politics in general. Oh yeah. yeah, both both sides don't really understand voters, and they're they're not interested in it. They're interested in fighting with one another. But one thing, and I let I go and talk to blue-collar people and, and friends and family who, who are not, who don't study politics for a living, which I eat are normal humans. Um, <laughs> they, 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 um, you know, they, they feel strongly about particular candidates and issues. But in truth, what they say is, I wish we could just get past all this partisan bickering and actually solve the problems that we are living in our, our lives. And I don't think anybody is trying to do that. Um, and I think it would be difficult to get a party nomination saying those sorts of things. But I actually think in the, the heart of hearts, it's what most voters want. And I think part so this, of that's what this group's appeal, trying to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly what you guys are trying to do, which is wonderful. And I think this part of Trump, this part of Trump's appeal was he, he, he paid a little lip service to this, I think. Got these corrupt Republicans and they're all bought off. Got these corrupt Democrats and they're all bought off. And I'm actually going to be the one who solved your problems. He didn't do it, though. I didn't think any interest in doing it. Um, but but he, he little played to this, but not not a lot. It's difficult to 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 play that game in partisan politics. Yeah, especially in the American system. In France, they have a president, and maybe not being that successful at it, but this is he he is trying to do this anyway. I, I think um, to be kind of a moderate voice that tries to break through and solve solutions. But France is an ungovernable nation and you know that leads quite a lot of other uh, problems. 
Republics have like a, I don't know, like a 35 year shelf life there. So they're already extended. Yeah. You know, like, I, right, yeah. I don't know like what they think they're doing over there. Well, the regime is past its expiration day. He's <laughs> the poor guy's doing the best he can. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, so John brought it up. I mean, realistically, I mean, you say nobody is trying to do that out there. Maybe nobody that anybody knows is trying to do it out there. It doesn't mean that oh, it's yeah. not being done. It's not, it's not being tried. Yeah. I mean, John and I are yeah. certainly trying that on a local level. Um, and our focus is like, it's just to give people information. We, we're not taking, I was, yeah. I was, uh, I could I belong to a whiskey club meeting and I went, um, or a whiskey club in, in Manassas where I live. And I went to a meeting on uh, Saturday and I was talking with a whole bunch of guys. And one of the ones came to our class last, uh, last Saturday. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, you think that, uh, you know, I love what you're doing do you really think people can learn this? And I go, yeah, absolutely. He goes, I was like, did you understand it? And he's like, yeah, I understand it. But I don't think that every, like most Americans can understand this type of stuff. And I go, dude, oh. I was like, I do. Like, I absolutely do. And the one thing that I've learned is every single American, every single citizen is really smart in what they know and really dumb in what they don't know. Right. And it's just a matter of getting them to like, understand that. Yeah. Like, I, I know t-shirt printing and I know it really well. And now I know politics and I know it really well because I've taken the time to study it. But, you know, five years ago, I didn't know any of this stuff. And there's no reason that a, you know, construction worker can't learn this information if they want to learn this information. Um, and just being able to like serve it up in a palatable way uh, for people mm -hmm. to understand is like, that's realistically what government is, you know, what are they, what are yeah. they doing? What are the parties doing? Like, what is the purpose of the parties? I think that's something we need to define as a nation. Um, but, you know, I just, I look at it and I go, well, we can do it. You know, you're saying conservatism is at its end. I'm, I'm yeah. saying, how do we save it? You know, like, yeah. let's just not let it go. Cause like you said before, revolutions are, they're not good. You know, like yeah. France is an example of that. You know, we have that rebellious streak in us because of where we came. But like I tell people, our original rebellious streak was the reason ours was so successful. It was blue collar intellectual leaders combined working together and we had a whole bunch of leaders working at the same time, not just one, right? Because we had 13 independent sovereign nations that all had their own leadership structures and we binded all that stuff together. And, you know, to solve it again, that's what we're trying to do. We're working inside of our district. We're creating a leadership group and a leadership base inside of our district. And then what we're trying to do is, you know, scale it eventually, give it, you know, yeah. make it work here and then give this information to other leaders and other districts and say, Hey, yeah. go do the same thing. Put in your own stuff along the way and just talk to people, talk to voters, create a bottom up structure as opposed to a top down structure, which is, I think, yeah. again, that's how we were created. We were a bottom up structure. So uh, first of all, I'm not saying conservatism is over. Remember, it's supposed to have a question mark at the end. Right, right, right. So it's supposed to be a question. <laughs> conservatism could be over. Um, I'm not saying it is necessarily. I'm saying it's a, it's, it's an endangered species, right? It's not yet extinct. Um, it's a danger. It's a risk of extinction. Um, but I think you're right. When I said nobody is doing these things, and no, nobody who's leading the Democratic or Republican Party. We we don't have. Um, and Emmanuel Macron or somebody who's trying to sort of push past the partisan divide and get a solution at the national level, at the local level. There's all sorts of people who do this. And it's very important work. 
Um, and I, I, I was just saying, um, or just not saying, I was just writing in my dissertation a minute before I got into this phone call, that part of the problem in our politics is, is our mindset. If, if we really want to revive democracy in America, which is itself um, maybe not an endangered species, but certainly not a healthy one, um, we, we have to stop thinking in terms of purely national problems. Because when we do that, we only think about national solutions, but places are different. People are different in different places and culture is different and the problems, different locations, space are different. And so political education has to begin at the local level. As you say, everything has to begin at the local level. We are a, a nation, we're a very large nation, and I think we're a very great nation. But that largeness means that we cannot run everything from the top down. We are not France, we are not England. Um, it comes with this caveat that things have to be ran from the bottom up. But I think it's great for us. Freedom flourishes in these small institutions. Um, the, the, the comment you made that this is a, a, a Tocqueville, a funny thing from Tocqueville, I think, in his book, Democracy in America. He's talking, you, you mentioned the, the, the person that you're, you're meeting, you said, I, I, I can learn this, but I'm not sure other people can. Tocqueville says the funny thing about Americans, because he was French, he said, the funny thing about Americans is, they all think they're exceptional and nobody, every single one of them sort of thinks they're exceptional. So you don't get this in other countries, but he seems to think it's a sort of great thing about America. I think it is a kind of great thing about America. We're people with confidence in ourselves. Um, that's kind of a beautiful thing, um, but it does make, I think it makes us sometimes dubious that just because we know politics, maybe not everybody else can, but I think everybody else can. I mean, I'm, I, I'm in the summer, I'm going to be a professor of politics. I've been teaching politics for a long time here at UVA. Um, I think you can teach people this stuff. I think you have to teach people this stuff. And a democracy requires that people understand this system. It requires that people think about politics, think about the problems they're facing and how they can solve them and who can best solve them for them when they go to the polls. And that kind of education is doable, but it takes time. But I think organizations like yours, um, and others are, are doing that hard work. And I, I hope one day soon we'll see the, the fruits of that. Yeah, we, us too. We're, we're getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> patience, Jeff. Patience and perseverance. <laughs> I mean, yeah. One of my, my favorite political thinkers about this is Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, he, 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 was somewhat, he, he felt very hopeful about it. America in the future, he's kind of a pessimist because his favorite poem was Yeats and it, the, just the Irish revolution has just happened and this guy, this, this Irishman celebrating, he's very happy and one of the revolutionary leaders comes to other road and says, what are you celebrating? The revolution. And he says, yeah, but you're still going to be a stone cutter. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 this level at which change happens so slowly and it's a little tragic, a little sad, very frustrating. Um, but, but at the end, if you can stick with it, the reward is, is perhaps worth it. Yeah. So, you know, to, to our movement, to tie it to what, you know, to the right, to the new right, like my idea is a populist Republican virtue movement, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I see is a whole bunch of people that are disenfranchised with the government system. And typically what you have, if you go through that if you go back to that power meets power thing, and you know, if you have one force, you're going to create an opposite force. Well, what you have in both the progressive left and the radical right is this idea that we know better and that we're going to do it for you. 
and they kind of leave regular people behind. And Republican yeah. virtue allows regular people to have control of the system. So yeah. if you simply explain it to the populist people who are following Trump and DeSantis, they're going to yeah. be like, oh, because like my big thing with local here in the local GOP is a lot of the people I meet, Trump supporters, and they, they want to drain the swamp. And I'm like, if yeah. you really want to drain the swamp, this is how you do it, right? You know, you yeah. got to have campaign finance regulation. You got to uncap yeah. the house. Like you've got to decentralize the power through these mechanisms of Republican government yeah. in order to drain it. If you're just giving the power to Trump or giving the power to DeSantis, you haven't drained anything. You just let them take control of the power. Yeah. That's the thing. Right now, our, our institutions, but I, I call it the intermediary institutions, but Burke called the little platoons, the hospitals, schools, town halls, um, these things that stand between us and the state are, are, are not as strong as they, they could be because they've, and they've been weakened over time because the government's taken a lot of their job work. Um, but just when we, if we drain the swamp, it's just, to use that, I think, kind of horrible phrase. Um, <laughs> but but if, if, if we decentralize things, I think to use a more accurate and much better term, if we decentralize things, that's not enough. You, you can't take a man who's been starving to death out of irons and expect him to jump up and suddenly be ready to do everything. But I think that there's a, there's a two parts to this. I think part of it is, yes, decentralized. A lot of things that have been put in Washington, ridding ourselves of the delusion that every social problem can be solved by some agency on K Street in Washington, D.C., but also bolstering our local institutions, making them ready so that when you do decentralize, these things are ready to govern. And they're right. not being governed by incompetent people or people who are not experienced or people who are ideologues. Um, they're just going to be doing the same things that happen in Washington at the local level, which I think is very possible in some places. And so strengthening those institutions, though, it's long work, it's hard work. I think if, if I was giving advice to the Republican Party or even the Democratic Party, I think that's, that, that's what you should be doing at the local level. Yeah. You should be empowering these things. Um, and at the national level, you can be decentralizing things. But I mean, I think this is a left-right thing. Everybody benefits from local democracy um, if it's done right. And I, that's mm -hmm. the, the importance of the second part. They have to make sure it's done right. Yeah. John, anything else for Tyler today? No, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I, I'm grateful for sharing it. And I, I won't hold it again. I'm a hokey, so I won't hold it against you that you're at UVA right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, yeah, yeah. Did you guys make the tournament at all? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm so detached. Oh, the hokey, no, the hokey, Hokies didn't, and then UVA didn't do so hot. But at least they made the tournament. You know, you gotta. We, we did, we did make the tournament, yeah, which is which is better than the Hokies did. But oh, we, we lost to right. Herman, which was great. You guys lost. You were a two seed, right? And you lost to a fifteen again. Something of that nature. Yeah. Either we win the whole thing or we lose to. <laughs> 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 it's, it's the only way UVA knows how to play basketball. With me. <laughs> Completely blow it or go all the way. <laughs> uh, but again, you did win a national championship. I mean, that's that we did win a my very first year here. We won a national championship. Very exciting. It made completely false expectations for the next four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe one day we'll uh, we'll be able to watch some basketball or something again. And right. We'll have to, yeah. as as you said earlier, 
um, we're not regular human beings because we study yeah. politics. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's it's sometimes when you when you when you only talk to people who study politics for a living, you get a very deluded idea of what people are like. Most people don't care that much. Oh, absolutely. Um, educated, intelligent people who I respect immensely don't care that much, um, mm -hmm. and it's not clear to me that. That we're better off for caring as much as we do sometimes. Um, but. I uh, I think I'm much less better off. That's my like continuing like belief. It, but at the yeah. same time, I go well. Somebody's got to do it, you know. Like I just don't see. I look around and I just see a bunch of bad leaders all across the board. Oh, and yeah. it's like, you know, you know, somebody's got to do it, right? So I I, I I joke about how unhealthy politics is for, but at the end of the day. Politics is, is part of being human. It's where we come together and we deliberate about the future of our society. It's an important thing. It's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, it's a beauty Maybe because it will all be it's, better. it's often a beautiful thing and not always a beautiful thing. Maybe it would all be better once we remade society into how we want it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that is certainly what a lot of people think and that's that's i think the, that's when politics loses its beauty but it's mm -hmm. no longer about how do you solve problems it's about how do i remake society um and, that, and that's when it ceases to be politics you've, you've stopped doing politics you've started engineering social engineering and those are different mm -hmm. things yes um, that is yeah, we we could do a whole uh, episode on social engineering. We should do an episode. Maybe, on that maybe one day soon. I'd be happy to. Yeah, uh, happy um, to come on and talk about that. I'm teaching a, a class next fall on modern ideologies, and we're going to be doing a lot of social engineering stuff. Uh, <laughs> reading about people, anyways, who are trying to do social engineering. Have you uh, read? So I have uh, a fresh on my mind. Henry Ford. He he was the he was a big social engineer. You know, I, I no, I've thought, I'm thinking about assigning it. I have to read him. So this is a, a sneak preview into how professors sometimes teach. I've not read Henry Ford, but I've wanted to. So I'm thinking about assigning him from class next fall. Um, I got a. The, the best classes you learn with the students, though. You don't necessarily just give them what you already know. Oh yeah, I do that now. Like with my kids, it's like, hey, I'm going to read this book. You're going to read it with me, and I'm going to teach it as I learn it. You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't have time to do things twice, you know? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, all right. Well, that that was a great show. Tyler, I appreciate you coming on. Love to have you back someday. Um, Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful way to, to start the week. Yeah. Um, for our regular podcast audience, we're trying to get, um, we have another guest booked for next Sunday who uh, wrote a, a a rebuttal to Tyler's article. Uh, <laughs> so I'm working on securing that. Hopefully we'll have that on next week. Um, just a reminder, uh, we have our next monthly meeting, April 22nd, being held at Giuseppe's uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. You can go to madisonianrepublicans.com and RSVP. Remember, our goal is to get 100 people there. Um, like I was telling my uh, my good friends at the Whiskey Club, you you're excited. You feel empowered to make change in your community, and you you loved watching it on YouTube. Well. If you want to make change, if you want them to listen to you, and by them, I mean the people in power, then you have to show that you're going to show up. You got to fill the room. Um, you got to make sure that they understand you're not going to go away. So again, you can RSVP, MadisonianRepublicans.com. Our meeting is on April 22nd. And as always, peace and love. <laughs>